0: guest today is Miles Taylor. Miles is a lot of things. So I'm going to try to summarize this, and you tell me if I'm getting it right or not. So you're kind of a, a, a veteran government official who did really high-level policy work for a long time. You are a political reformer and advocate. You are the author of a new book called Blowback, Warning to Save Democracy for the Next Trump, which we're going to talk about. You are the host of a podcast called The Whistleblowers Inside the Trump Administration. Um, And it feels like you probably do like five other things too, because you're like one of the more interesting people I've ever met. What did I miss?
1: Uh, That I don't want to be doing any of it. And that I would just rather be a farmer in a small town in Virginia. And you did just <laughs> buy. I did just yeah, buy a property that's like all right. So that's kind the of the about near some farms. Yeah. Um, you know, I, well, I, farming,
0: I, book writing. I mean, you're in all the lucrative stuff. Well, I yeah. gotta
1: say, you know, I get I get ribbed a lot for the whole anonymous thing that right. published anonymous I published this anonymous op-ed while in the Trump administration. I wake up a lot of mornings and kind of still wish I was anonymous because the as as you see all the time, Bradley. I mean the sort of chaos and the vitriol in our public discourse makes doing anything in the public domain, a pride swallowing siege every day. But if people aren't going out there talking about it, uh, then the bad guys, you know, dominate the discourse.
0: Right, right. You can choose to live an easier life, basically knowing you won't fix anything or change anything or have an impact. Um, or you could try to do the right thing and good things, but you no know, good deed goes unpunished. So you mentioned the op-ed. That's kind of how you, when you, when it was unmasked that you were anonymous, kind of you became first really well-known. So what job did you have at the time that you wrote this? Well, it, it, well
1: first I would say anyone would be well within their rights and reasonable to question my judgment for doing it the way I did and I'm happy to talk sure. a little bit through it but at the time I was serving as deputy chief of staff as the Department of Homeland Security shortly mm-hmm. after that became chief of staff was kind of a dream job you know it's a 250,000 person department with a 60 billion dollar budget charged with protecting the American people and I went into government after 9-11. I was in the Twin Towers two weeks before they fell, having lunch up at the, you know, Restaurant of the World, View of the World Mm -hmm. restaurant up there in the Twin Towers, had a huge impact on me, went into the world of national security. This is what I wanted to do. But instead of going into that job, getting to focus on protecting the country against emerging threats, cyber threats and terrorists in Russia and China, we were singularly focused on one thing, and that was Trump. Because he constantly had these immoral, Unethical and often illegal things he wanted us to do. That instead of getting to focus on those two hundred and fifty thousand brave women and men who ran, you know, who were part of that department, we had to focus on one person and containing his chaos and frankly babysitting him, which is what led me to do what I did, um, which is to try to call it out
0: for the listeners. So so, who who don't remember this, there was an op-ed in the New York Times by anonymous that, as I remember reading when it first came out. Effectively, I am a high-ranking person inside the Trump administration, and there is an internal resistance of a lot of people who will do everything we can to mitigate the harm this guy can cause. Is that yeah about
1: right? You know, that's the crux of it. And and you know, look, I, I didn't go into the Trump administration with wool over my eyes. I mean, it was very clear who this guy was. I'm a lifelong Republican that had tried to prevent his rise. I was working in the House of Representatives under Paul Ryan when he was speaker, and we tried to stop Trump. Clearly, we failed yep. fucking miserably, yep. and had no excitement or desire to go into his administration, which as you know, as, as a guy who's come up in politics, you know, in the political sphere, it's a huge disappointment to have someone from your party take over the White House, but then have no desire to go in. Right um but so then, then what, had, why did you but then I had mentors go yeah. in and people I looked up to like John Kelly or Jim Mattis or these other figures who actually could have been picked as cabinet secretaries in a Democratic administration too. these sure. unifying figures who didn't know Donald Trump right but who really felt like they could keep him in check and I not only bought into what I called the axis of adults and I shared that term early in the administration with Kim Dozier at the Daily Beast Uh, But I actively propagated that notion in those types of news stories as saying, don't worry. Is Trump crazy? Yes. But there's this axis of adults keeping him in check. But as time went on, uh, saying no to Donald Trump was no longer enough. In the first year, we got a lot of bad ideas back into the box. He wanted to pull out of NATO. He wanted to shoot people in the legs at the border. You know, you name it, crazy idea after crazy idea, and largely, largely contained.
0: From you know, him, or do you think he just like would like control the internet, read Twitter comments, see crazy ideas, decide they were brilliant, and then tell someone to do it? Uh, it's tough to say, but like whichever
1: version of that is the truth, they're both terrifying. <laughs> yeah. you know, a yeah. president that's that's regularly concocting illegal ideas and trying to implement them, scary. Perhaps even scarier, one that's just trolling the internet <laughs> for crazy <laughs> ideas, you know? On Twitter. And I think it was a combination of both of those. I mean, he was singularly obsessed with social media. Our days were governed By his tweets which is very frustrating when you're running a department that's responsible for protecting this country against terrorists and foreign spies and the whole thing and you wake up in the morning and one fucking tweet from the president means you've got to clear the entire schedule no more intelligence brief no more meeting with the head of the secret service none of those things because you got to rush to the White House to babysit the president and convince him that no sir you cannot take. You know, $5 billion from this department and move it to this department. You know, Congress appropriated the money, but we were constantly having to do these fire drills where we rushed to the White House. So we get into 2018, it's clear that things are bad. And the thing that really set it off for me is there were conversations among Trump's own lieutenants, his cabinet secretaries, about if it got any worse, they might need to consider talking about the 25th Amendment, the amendment to the Constitution that allows the president's cabinet to deem him unfit to discharge the duties of his office and transfer the powers to the vice president. That was the moment at which, to me, this was no longer things we needed to keep inside the family, inside the administration. That's the type of thing the American people need to know about. If the president's own people think he's not fit for office, published it anonymously in the New York Times. And So
0: when, when you yeah. wrote it and you you had to pitch it to the Times, Was there, like, a whole negotiation over whether or not it would be anonymous, or were they just, like, so eager to have it that they were fine with whatever terms you were comfortable with? Well, you know, this is where
1: I encourage people to question my judgment here. And here was my thought process at the time. And um, in some ways, it was a moral choose-your-own adventure, the whole administration. Sorry, caveat. A moral choose-your-own nightmare because every choice was a bad choice whether or not to go into the Trump administration, whether to try to contain the chaos from within or quit, you know, whether to speak out from within and quit, when you know to quit and actually turn against him publicly. I mean, all of these were choices you had to face at every turn. In that instance, the model for this was actually the Founding Fathers. And make no mistake, I'm not comparing myself to the Founding Fathers, but when they wrote the Federalist Papers to sell the US public on a new constitution, mm-hmm. they chose to write all of those essays anonymously, and they did it for a reason. Not because they were scared to attach their names to it, but because they knew their names would distract from the message, that the critics would just attack them as the messengers and not engage in debate. And you know what? It worked incredibly well, because when they started to issue those essays, people started responding, and there was a big debate in this country about the ideas. And I took that concept, and there was a particular night that set me off A mentor of mine had been John McCain, worked with him on Capitol Hill. He was the first person I met that was an elected member of Congress in Washington, and he passed away in 2018. And I was on an intelligence delegation overseas working on a threat issue, and I get a phone call from John Kelly's office. And McCain had just passed. The flags were flying at half-staff across the country, and they said, we need to warn you. The president's probably going to call and order you to raise the flags back up. Little known fun fact, the Department of Homeland Security is the one that tells federal buildings to lower the flags when a statesman dies. And I said, I don't understand what you mean. He hated John McCain so much, he wanted us to tell the country and every federal building do not honor him by flying the flags at half-staff, raise them back up. There were a lot of other reasons to snap, better reasons to snap snap during the Trump administration. But it was that moment where, frankly, I got up in my boxers in the hotel room and I said, fuck this. And I went over to my computer and I just wrote. All of the things that I felt were alarming about what I was seeing in the administration started off as a journal entry. And then I thought, but people need to read this. I flipped it to a contact at The Times. And they ended up saying, yeah, we're, we're willing to run it anonymously. They verified my identity. Uh, the only caveat was I wanted to sign it Publius, which was the pen name those founding fathers used for those Federalist Papers, mm-hmm. those anonymous essays. Again, I didn't want to use that to compare myself to them, but I thought a discerning reader would understand what I meant, which is I'm not trying to hide. I'm trying to put the focus on the message.
0: Right. So this comes up First of all, were, did you vet it with like any lawyers? Like, How did you know that you weren't saying things that would ultimately you'd be violating your own national security obligations.
1: Um, Well, unlike Trump, I'm not an idiot, and I am very cognizant of my obligations around the protection of classified information. And so, you know, I made sure that anything that I was writing in there was First Amendment-protected speech. It was largely a critique of the sitting commander-in-chief, and, yes, unprecedented for that to come from within his own administration, from someone that he had appointed Um, But again, First Amendment protected speech. What was very telling and very ironic is in that piece I said the president is misusing his powers for political purposes, and that's presidential corruption. And then after the piece dropped, he sent out a seven-letter tweet in all caps, treason, question mark, and then he ordered the Justice Department to investigate the author. So all he did was prove my point. He proved my point in the aftermath of the op-ed that he wanted to use— the powers of the federal government and the Justice Department to come investigate someone who had engaged in First Amendment protected speech. Now to the credit of the New York Times they said go pound sand. <laughs> you know we're not gonna hand this person over but his demand was that they hand me over to the Justice Department and later called for my imprisonment in a whole range of, of other things. But I will say Bradley um, I, I have a big regret about that period and that is I waited too long to unmask myself. Now, I said at the time, "Yeah, I it's will it's come a, forward." Yeah. What
0: What made you choose to do it, and and what was the process like? Uh, the thing that
1: prevented me from doing it, if I'm being really honest with myself, it took me a long time to admit this was fear. Sure. It was just fear. I convinced myself, well, like you I'm, said, you're not
0: an idiot. Yeah, I'm going
1: <laughs> to come forward eventually, and I'm going to do the right thing. But really, I saw what Donald Trump was doing to his enemies. And after I left the administration, I got a great job in the private sector. I was making money for the first time in my life. Uh, Life was stable. And I knew that the moment I unmasked myself, everything would fucking implode. Um, But then we saw the pandemic happen, and people started dying. And it was clear to me that all of these ex-officials that I was trying to get to come and speak out against Trump. And after I quit, I went to all of them. I mean, I went to the cabinet secretaries and I said, you got to go say publicly what we've been saying privately. No one would do it. Right. And I was stuck in that irony. as And like, they well,
0: didn't know that you were the author.
1: And they no. didn't. Yeah. And um, But, you know, I had to confront that and say, look, I'm asking these people to speak out and I won't unmask myself. So in 2020, I did. I campaigned for months against the president. Um, and and I confronted those fears, and, and again, no one has to have sympathy for me. But the cost was high. Um, so
0: yeah, it, what what was the cost? I mean, what was the worst? What were the worst things that kind of happened as a result?
1: Everything. The only thing that it didn't cost me yet was my life. I ended up losing my home because I had to flee because of death threats. I ended up getting fired from my job in the tech sector because I was too toxic and political. Uh, A a relationship that I was in at the time crumbled in the aftermath of it. I ended up having to have a protective detail. I had to live in a safe house. I had to blow my life savings on lawyers and other protective measures. And my family members were receiving the death threats in the vitriol. It was everything. And and the reason I say no one has to have sympathy is because I did go into that clear-eyed. I knew that that was likely going to be the consequence of unmasking myself. But here was the bright side. The bright side was that in coming forward, I saw how it made it easier for my former colleagues to come forward. Is there always needs to be someone to say, "Hey, the water's warm, come jump in." And I'm very proud to say that we we ended up being the largest group of ex-administration officials in American history to turn against a president who had appointed them. And and that's you know no credit to me. I mean, those people made that decision bravely on their own. And I think in some measure, it stopped him from getting reelected. But the bigger worry I have is it showed me that the price of dissent in America
0: is dangerously high. So from there, so you you have this incredibly unique transformative experience, both terrible and in some ways wonderful. Um, And that turns you into kind of a political reformer, where then you work on the creation of both the Forward Party and in the creation of of a think tank called Future US, what was that evolution like?
1: After Trump left office, I had a phone call with a good friend of mine, a guy named Evan McMullen, who mm-hmm. I, sure. I think you know. He ran for Senate, but he also ran in 2015, 2016 for president against Trump in a last-ditch effort to try to take Trump down from the right. It failed, but Evan's a patriot. So about a month after the administration ended, uh, I never wanted to be in electoral politics, but it was clear to me that the only way to prevent this from happening again was try to reform the Republican Party from within. So Evan and I had a phone call of about 200 elected Republicans, senators, congressmen, former cabinet secretaries, thought leaders, writers, and we did it all in private. And we had this private, like, five-hour Zoom call where we talked about how do we get the pendulum to swing back from the MAGA side of the GOP to rational Republicans. And we mapped out this effort. And in the wake of it, a bunch of organizations were launched. Evan and I ran one called Renew America Movement, all with the goal of trying to get sane Republicans elected and, and to defeat the MAGA folks. I'd hate, I hate to say it, but we, we failed. Uh, yeah. We failed completely because the MAGA machinery after Trump completely overtook the party and disproved us. We were hoping he was an aberration and right. just a uniquely deranged individual. He was He wasn't. was the rule,
0: not the exception.
1: He was the leader of a massive movement. When that happened, and one of the reasons why I got involved in third-party efforts was to say we need more competition and choice in our democracy, including people who are willing to go in and challenge MAGA Republicans in safe districts. So I helped Andrew Yang launch the Forward Party, and one of the things I most wanted to see Forward do is go find those entrenched Republicans, the ones that Democrats had no hope of beating and team up in a coalition with the Democrats to go take out some of those individuals. So I'm gonna throw a hypothetical out there. Think about a Ted Cruz in Texas. Mm -hmm. Gonna be really hard in this next go around for Democrats to beat Ted Cruz in Texas. But what if the Democrats teamed up with a bunch of independents, concerned conservatives, and third party people to run an independent against Cruz, I don't know. It might be more competitive. So, my hope was we could take these really uncompetitive districts, make them competitive again, and give those MAGA candidates a run for their money. And so, it, you know, the jury's still out on whether some of that will be successful, but it's clear we need more competition.
0: What, what does it take um, to be able to secure a permanent ballot line you know, for every jurisdiction and every office?
1: A lot. Yeah. A lot. I mean, look. Our system really is, and this isn't a conspiracy theory, our system is really stacked against the emergence of choice and competition in the democracy. And, and that's happened over the course of 100 years as uh, the primary process has calcified to make it easier for incumbents to win. Why is that the case? In most states, the primaries are closed. What does that mean? It means you can only go vote in a primary if you're a member of that party. And it means that the most ideological, fervent supporters end up going to the polls in the primary process, and that 10% of the country ends up choosing who's on the ballot for the rest of us, the 90% of us when we get there in the general election. So by the time we show up with that ballot, it's largely the far left or more likely the far, far right candidates that are on that ballot line, giving us a choice between two evils. Now, I don't want to create a false equivalence because I do think right now the Democratic Party is one of our last bulwarks towards saving democracy. I'm not a Democrat. I'm still a hardcore conservative, but I think there has to be that coalition campaigning to prevent this from happening. But those reforms to open up the primary process are going to take years and years and years. And and there's a fair debate, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, about whether, you know, I I don't have a definitive opinion on, right now, the presidential race and whether it's going to be helpful or hurtful for third-party entrants. I mean, No Labels has got a whole effort. You know, it's it's worth talking about. But in down-ballot races, Senate races, House races, I think it's really important, especially in places where, again, these MAGA Republicans have no competition and they're just destined to win re-election, that we go run independence and third party candidates against them to try to shake up our democracy.
0: Yeah. So, um, creating a third party, you know, I, I looked at this over the years uh, in my work for my Bloomberg and, you know, did what I could to help you guys on the, on the Forward Party. Um, what about it was what you expected it to be and what proved on her? Um I expected people would be excited because the polls show us
1: that 50% of this country now considers themselves political independents. Yep. Only 25% respectively say they're a Democrat or a Republican. So that's the highest it's ever been. People are desperate for alternatives. What I didn't expect is how incredibly difficult it would be structurally to go build that foundation. Yep. And another piece of it is just the messaging. You know, people have a lot of fear about a third party spoiling the 2024 election and getting Trump reelected. And I'll tell you, I'm the last damn person on this planet that would wanna see Donald Trump in the White House again. That's what blowback's all about. I mean, I'll probably be in an orange jumpsuit in Gitmo in Cuba if Donald Trump gets reelected. And I only say that half facetiously uh, because he did wanna send people to Gitmo when we were president that weren't terrorists. He wanted to send innocent people to Gitmo, and I talk about that in the book. That ended up being harder than expected. So at the forward party, you know, when I was still involved with them full time, I'm no longer formally involved with them, but very supportive of the efforts, uh, made a a commitment that they would not field a candidate for president in 2024 because of this worry about potentially creating a fast lane for Donald Trump to return to the White House for, you know, to pull from Biden's votes and make it easier for Trump to win. Um, But there are other efforts potentially underway to do that And whether you agree with them or not, you have to confront the reality that Americans are desperate for something else. They're really frustrated with the extremes. And if we don't address that frustration, people will go around the political process. And I'm a national security guy, spent most of my career looking at foreign terrorist movements, destabilization in other countries. And what you often see as the leading indicator that a country is devolving into civil strife is that people believe the system no longer works and is not responsive to them. That's the first thing. And once they believe the system doesn't work, it gets a lot easier for them to be radicalized to violence. And and we're seeing that in the polls today in the US, that Americans have a much more favorable view than ever about political violence towards the government. People believe it's viable. A University of Chicago survey last year found that 10% of Americans believe that the use of force would be justified to reinstall Donald Trump into the White House. That's 35 million people. That's shocking.
0: So then, as you look towards the presidential election next year, you see Trump both get indicted and his numbers only get better um, inside of the primary. How do you see things playing out? And you know, you have a book coming out uh, in a few days that is literally called a warning to prevent the next Trump, right? So what do, what do people need to be mindful of? Well, we need to be clear-eyed about
1: what that administration will look like. And what I didn't want to write is just another Trump retrospective. No offense to people who've written their memoirs about the Trump years. But look, I don't want to write some tome to say, let's rehabilitate my image and tell you about how I was this fucking superhero in the Trump. We're sick of reading those books. We're sick of them on the bookshelves. I'm frustrated that no one was telling the story about what will happen if we do this again. Because it's become increasingly likely that Trump or a copycat from the MAGA side Will be the nominee and potentially win the White House. In fact, right now the betting markets have Trump at three times the odds of being the next president, as he had on the eve of winning the presidency in 2016. the The betting markets gave him a nine percent chance in 2016. Now they're giving him north of 30 percent chance of being the next president. So we got to take it seriously. That means being really, really honest about what will happen in the second term. So this book, you know, again, spoke to dozens and dozens of people at the highest levels who'd served under and with Trump to tell the story about what will happen at the Department of Veterans Affairs, what will happen at the Defense Department, what will happen to these other Democratic guardrails. It's a very alarming picture, and I, you know, I'll give you a couple of snippets. I mean, I had senior folks from the intelligence community that Trump handpicked. These are Trump people who said they worried in a second term that he would want to weaponize America's intelligence agencies to go spy on his rivals. I mean, think Nixon on steroids. Nixon at least knew he needed to be quiet about that and hide the fact that he had this desire. But people around Trump heard him talk about that. I mean, even John Kelly had said to me at one point that Trump pitched the idea of wiretapping all of the White House staff so he could find out who was talking bad about him. Okay, newsflash, that's fucking illegal. You cannot do that. But in the second term, there won't be the John Kelly's to tell him no. The weaponization of the spy community I think is a big concern, but same thing with the Justice Department is people who served in Trump's Justice Department said there's plans to go put an array of special counsels in place if he comes in. Uh, One person told me the watchwords of the DOJ will be, sue the blue. In other words, use all DOJ resources to sue Democratic politicians, sue blue states sue left-leaning organizations and mire them in litigation to try to make it difficult for them to operate, whether the cases are legitimate uh, or not. I mean, these are very alarming things. And I even thought as I was writing these quotes in the book, attributing, attributing them to these people, I worried about folks not taking it seriously because it sounds so fantastical. And then Donald Trump, as he often does, comes and says the quiet part out loud. And two months ago he goes out there and he makes clear that the theme of his campaign will be revenge. And he says, I am your retribution. And since then he's spoken extensively about how he'll weaponize the levers of the federal government. And so he's just gone and he's proved the point again. And this book, Blowback, it is the playbook of what they will do uh, uh, if they get a second term.
0: I guess here's a thing that I... Wonder and worry about, yeah. right? Which is, you know, we can keep learning more and more and more terrible things about Trump, right? Whether it's kind of the the risk that you foretell of what a second term could look like, um, or more indictments or anything else, does any of it matter? Or are we just at this moment where you have one side or the other, and even what feels like incredibly persuasive arguments and proof against your theory somehow in your mind just confirms that you're right? well
1: you know it's uh, we've all wrestled with that question I know you've wrestled with it we've yeah. had great conversations about that the conclusion that I've come to and it's a deeply ironic one and i I'll be saying this all this week and next week and I'll say it until I'm blue in the face is that I think the biggest danger to our democracy right now is anonymity and yes the joke writes itself anonymous says anonymity is bad but I learned that through that hard experience because When I didn't unmask myself, like I said, it made it harder for people to come forward. Once I did, it showed that it was easier to come forward. And here's the better example that I often use when I speak to student groups. We've all taken Econ 101, boring class, important class, and you learn supply and demand. And you learned that when the price of something is too high in a marketplace, there's only two ways to lower it. And right now, the price of dissent in this country, speaking out, telling the truth, saying, yep, these guys are autocrats, we gotta move on, that price is very high. People don't want their families threatened like me. They don't wanna lose their jobs. So how do you lower that price? Well, in econ, you got two things. You can either decrease demand, uh, but if you decrease demand for truth, then all we get is more lies. We don't want that. The only other way is what? Increase the supply. The only way to lower the price of something in a marketplace, increase the supply. We need more people who are willing to tell the truth about the corruption in my former party, who are willing to tell the truth about the former president to lower that price of dissent and make it easier for others. But I've kind of given up, Bradley, on doing that in Washington. A lot of these so-called adults still won't speak out from the highest echelons of the Republican Party, people who still privately tell me they think Trump's a danger to democracy still go on TV and defend him. It's going to come down to small business owners in LaPorte, Indiana. It's gonna come down to school teachers in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's gonna be everyday Americans who decide, okay, I'm not gonna go to that barbecue and zip my mouth shut because I'm worried about offending people with the truth that I think it's unsafe to vote for this guy again. They're gonna go do that, they're gonna say it, and make it easier for the person sitting next to them who feels the same way but doesn't wanna piss off the MAGA guy flipping burgers at the grill to say it too. And that's what we need. But there's a much better way to understand this, and it's the cancel culture phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Everyone now, it's not just celebrities, everyone is self censoring because they're worried about pissing off someone else. And I used to think, you know, there was no data to back that up. We just kind of all know it heuristically. We're all spooked to get canceled. Uh, and then this incredible survey came out that I talk about in the book. These, these remarkable teams surveyed thousands of Americans and found out that now more than ever, people are keeping their true opinions private and publicly share a different opinion than they actually hold. And what was really scary is it was most prevalent among moderates and centrists and independents that people who are hardcore far right or hardcore far left we're much more likely to tell you what they they really think.
0: They're living in their bubble. They get reinforcement all the time from the people who agree with them. And, you know, being attacked uh, just kind of in their mind just kind of confirms that they're right in the first place. And also, in a lot of ways, they don't really matter, right? So, like, your average sort of far-right or far-left person, when when you're looking at their sort of overall important society in terms of, you know, businesses they create or run, or organizations or like, you know, their actual real-world impact is pretty limited because these are fringe people at, at the edges. Um, and then, yeah, you get the people in the middle who are definitely afraid to say stuff. You know, look, I get this shit kicked out of me by the far... It's ironic. The far right should dislike me much more than the far left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the far right probably doesn't even know I exist. And the far left complains about me constantly.
1: Well, right? and, 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 you know, we have to... You and I were talking about this before we went live. It's really hard to stay in this public sphere because it's not rewarding, it's not lucrative. Um, If anything, it's the exact opposite. Um, But if people start disappearing from the public fray who are sensible centrists, it just gives the extremes more oxygen. And so we've gotta make it easier for people to dissent. But I think one of the only ways that works is in the long term, We've gotta implement the democracy reforms that makes it, it makes it easier for rational candidates to win elections yeah, I mean, and takes away the power from the extremes. And it can't happen overnight. It can't happen before 2024. You've been working on this extensively uh, and using your own time and your own money to invest in these reforms. And you know it will take generations. So how yeah. do we survive
0: this interim period? Uh, it's gonna be, we're on a knife's edge. Um, how does the, the podcast and the book obviously seem conceptually aligned? Um, how do the two interplay? Tell mm-hmm. me about the podcast. You have these amazing uh, guests. I was looking at the roster. How'd you get them? Like, t- t- Tell me a little bit about all that. It,
1: it was, I, w- I was very lucky. It was a wonderful experience. There's two studios, Best Case Studios and Arc Media, wonderful podcast and documentary filmmakers who reached out to me and said they wanted to tell the stories that the American public didn't know about from inside the Trump administration of whistleblowers, people who spoke out. And I, I was lucky to be involved in that project, but it completely exceeded expectations. Because we went and interviewed these people, like Alex Vindman and Andy McCabe, the former acting FBI director, mm-hmm. and Stephanie Grisham, the former White House communications director, and a whole range of different people, yeah. um, but didn't just interview them. We went back in time and told aspects of their stories people didn't know about, and it was gripping, it was emotional, and it was very, very raw because these people all had their lives rocked by turning against a sitting president. And, uh, and so we tell those stories in detail. But what was actually inspiring about it is we asked every single whistleblower we spoke to that after everything, after losing the jobs and having their lives destroyed and the death threats, and you go down that list, um, did they regret it? And not a single person did. They all said they would do it again. And that's telling. And I think that's what would-be whistleblowers need to hear. Yeah,
0: or even the more basic thing, which is, look, it is not unreasonable to say, I don't want the negative repercussions that uh, come with being a whistleblower, speaking out everything else. But when you look at the people like you who both did so and paid a price for it and yet don't regret it, it's because... You know if you just take it down to its basis level feeling truly good about yourself and feeling like you did something courageous and meaningful is probably ultimately going to be of greater benefit to you than whatever next thing doesn't come your way because you dissented or whatever else um you know i think we always assume that money status power is what we should be striving for, and therefore we don't want anything to risk those things. But the reality is all of those things provide far less dopamine um, than yes, actually sure. genuinely feeling good about yourself or well, doing something hard. And
1: that's the upside. But I, I'll talk about the downside too, which is you know the upside is you'll feel immense moral relief by just doing the right thing. I mean, I sound like a fucking kindergarten teacher, no, but the it's, kindergarten it's lessons are true. Yeah, yeah. Um, but here's the downside is I learned the hard way that suppressing the truth, suppressing my identity and living these two lives, one is anonymous, one is Miles Taylor. How many
0: people knew before you unmasked yourself that you were anonymous?
1: Tiny handful. I mean, uh, they kept the one piece of paper I had to sign locked in a vault at the New York Times headquarters. Uh, and, And I knew just from life in the intelligence community, it's why we compartmentalize things and limit distribution is so things don't get out. The more people that know, the more likelihood. And so we kept it very tight. Uh, which led to a pressure cooker internally. And, you know, I'm a cautionary tale because suppressing the truth leads you to do stupid things. And the stress of all of that led me to drink too much, Mm -hmm. led me to abuse prescription drugs, Mm -hmm. uh, led me to become clinically depressed until in the midst of the fight against Donald Trump, I found myself in an emergency room in California having overdosed at a level that doctors said would have killed other patients. And I had to recognize with this pretty deep hypocrisy that here I was saying that Donald Trump was so reckless and he was dismantling democracy's guardrails and was a threat to the country, and here I was, not preserving my personal guardrails, and these were the consequences. And so, not to stretch the analogy too far, but, uh, you know, quite honestly, the delay in speaking the truth led me to the brink of— you know, suicidal ideation. And I've tried to be very candid about that with folks. And I think it's the same with our country right now. Our refusal to tell the truth about what's happening and to zombie walk back into a potential second term of Trump is a form of civic suicidal ideation. We as a country are potentially prepared to do something that will end the American experiment. Now again, people don't have to have sympathy for me. I mean, after all of this, Uh, A lot of great things happened in my life. I'm at the love of my life. I'm now 18 months sober, um, but ignoring my own guardrails put me at grave risk. And it's the same thing with our country right now. We cannot ignore those guardrails. And and if we do, we risk self-destruction.
0: So it feels like of your work, there's sort of two pieces to it, right? There's the short-term-ish, which is, okay, this guy's coming back on the ballot. And if you thought he was bad, wait till you find out the stuff that you didn't even realize, right? So that's the book. That's the podcast. That's the encouraging dissent so that people feel comfortable speaking and then ultimately voting that way um, in the 2024 election to make sure that this guy doesn't win. But then the other half of your work through Future U.S. is much more broadly thinking about, like, okay, what do we need to do to fix the country overall beyond just this one individual, because as terrible as he is, he's still one person and we've got to function. We got a lot to fix, even if, if he just disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow, we still have a lot of problems, right? Sure. So what do you do with Future Yes?
1: Yeah, you know, of course, want, I wanna sound the alarm about what could happen electorally in this country into the executive branch, but in the longer term, my full-time job most of my effort is devoted towards this think tank we've launched called yep. the Future US, nonpartisan, nonprofit, focused on really advising policymakers uh, to help them see around corners. And I'll give you an example. This moment that we are in with artificial intelligence mm-hmm. is not just a technology issue, this is going to have enormous ramifications for our democracy, for job displacement. Uh, you know it will cause civil strife there's going to be incredible things that happen from ai there's going to be scary things that happen and we should have been having this conversation in washington ten years ago and a lot of us were pushing for it and folks didn't want to pay attention we can't make those same mistakes we have to be better prepared but also keep america at the forefront uh, of these you know developments so that we don't fall behind the rest of the world so we keep our democracy thriving and healthy and so we've launched this, this institution really to go accelerate tomorrow's ideas and help policymakers so they don't get caught flat-footed by these developments uh, and we can better protect our democracy so great cross-partisan team um, you know we, we have a number of incredible folks involved dozens and dozens of advisors, CEOs, technologists, former policymakers from both sides of the aisle. Uh, and, and I'm hoping that can help arm people in Washington to find things to work with each other on across the aisle, because we've gotten way too far away from those post 9 11 days where there was unity and members of Congress were working yeah. together.
0: Yeah, that's right. All right, so lots of ways for people to stay in touch with you. So the first thing is, I um, highly recommend the book. Uh, blow back let's make sure I get the title right a warning to save democracy from the next Trump uh, the podcast which is called the whistleblowers inside the Trump administration um, And then future U.S. how do people learn more about that and get involved?
1: We know honestly I'm <clears throat> some people try to make it hard to get in touch with them I people just want to go on my Twitter at miles Taylor USA Just DM me. I mean I keep it open because you never know who might reach out who want to you know Who wants to collaborate on a project and do something good anyone anyone can just send me mm-hmm. a message there um, and uh, I did make the mistake, though, of putting my email address out there once publicly when I said it. It got seized upon, sent around on MAGA circles. And I got doxed so mercilessly, I, I just couldn't get through my inbox anymore. Right, right. I had so much trash. So I prefer you just DM me on Twitter. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, please be in touch and reach out. Would love for you to review the the book. Let me know what you think. And seriously, I always say this. If you hate the book, if you love the book, I don't care. Go tell people about your opinion. I'm happy to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. But hopefully, folks will share this with someone they think needs to hear it. Someone who needs to know what will really happen if we go down this road again and, and that's what i hope folks will share
0: there we go miles taylor thanks for joining us thanks bradley hope you just enjoyed our episode with miles taylor i know i enjoyed recording it um miles is going to be here at pnt netware on july 26th uh speaking with molly Jungfast, fast also our friend and, and firewall guest so come say hi to us at pnt netware at 180 orchard street if you're in new york city and wherever you are in the world be sure to download subscribe to firewall thanks